And today we're going to conclude our, our series in the book of Titus. Uh, Titus has been a really good study. In some ways, I, I feel like it's been um, a really challenging study. And so as we've gone through this uh, little book, the month of November, my, my prayer has been that um, we as a church would learn to uh, lean into and to embrace uh, not only the easy things that we find in Scripture, but that we would learn to uh, press into and love even the hard things in Scripture. You know, one of the, the marks of spiritual maturity is that when we come to a place in the Scriptures, when we come to a place in the Word where we disagree with something, spiritual maturity is saying, Jesus, you're right and I'm wrong, right? And just learning how to submit ourselves to his authority and his truth as our ultimate authority in life. And so Titus gives us the opportunity to practice some of that because there are some, some hard things in this book. And so far we've seen uh, in Paul's letter to Titus that a healthy church has uh, godly leaders who do a couple of key things. First of all, they teach the real gospel of Jesus. They also guard against gospel distortions or what we would call false gospels. And so, in other words, we don't add to the gospel of Jesus. We don't subtract from the gospel of Jesus. When we do that, we either end up in legalism or we end up in license. And we don't have time to kind of rehash both of those uh, faulty ideas. Um, if you've missed the last week or two, you can always go back and catch those messages. But both of those things are dangerous. They're both gospel distortions, both legalism and license. And so in this letter, Paul is anchoring Titus in the gospel of Jesus as Titus is setting up these brand new churches in this sort of crazy, dark, uh, immoral place uh, on the island of Crete approximately 2,000 years ago. And then last week, we saw that a healthy church lives in a way that matches the message, right? That we, we shouldn't live this life that's disconnected from what we say we believe. And so Paul lays out for us what the Christian life should look like for older men, for younger men, for older ladies and younger ladies. And he just gives us this idea of a godly life, a life that's kind of lived out, poured out, focused on making disciples, and advancing the kingdom of Jesus. And this week, we'll see that believers in a healthy church are doers of good, not just within the walls of the church, but we're actually to be doers of good outside the walls of the church. So in our communities, in our cities, like Asheville ought to be a better place because we're here, because new life is here, because believers are in this city, we ought to be a better city because of that fact. And we'll see today that the gospel actually compels us to live a life full of good works outside of the four walls of wherever we worship. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it. Go to Titus chapter 3. That's the, the final chapter in this little letter, and we'll uh, finish it out together uh, this morning. So Titus 3. Beginning in verse 1, and of course, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege named Titus. And he says, remind them, Titus, that is these, these young believers in Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And so Paul says, Titus, remind these brand new Christians to be obediently submissive to rulers and authorities. And Paul is speaking here about civil authorities. Uh, but I think it just as easily could be expanded to any authority that God puts in our lives. So if you're at home and you're a kid, you're a teenager, your parents. 
If you're in the workplace, your, your bosses, uh, your teachers if you're in school, police officers, uh, coaches, wh- whatever it is. And I think the reason that Paul specifically hones in and mentions being submissive to government here is because uh, these Cretans to whom he's writing were famous for insurrections and rebellions and assassinating government officials. They're just kind of like this culture of rebellion, this this bloodthirsty people. And Paul is saying, listen, the Christian life should be lived distinctly different from this. Like believers, we, should, we shouldn't always be looking for a fight. We shouldn't always be looking for a way to, to rebel. In fact, in Paul's letter to another young guy named Timothy, he actually writes to believers and says, hey, listen, Christians should actually be praying for their government officials. We actually should be like lifting them up in prayer to uh, God. Now, this would have been really hard for these believers in Crete who were under Roman occupation. It's hard for us today as Americans in 2018. And I think it's hard for a couple reasons. I think the first reason is we all hate submission, don't we? We just hate submission. Like nobody, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And um, this kind of leaks out of us, even in subtle ways and in small ways, as I was kind of examining my own life. And that's always the hard thing about preaching is you have to filter your own life through the stuff before you preach it. And uh, oftentimes uh, it's really, really convicting. And so I was thinking about my life uh, and the ways that this plays out in my own life in just small ways, just subtle ways. And I thought of uh, probably a dozen or more examples, many of which uh, I'm not going to share with you. But, um, you know, one way, just a simple way that this plays out in my own heart, there's a, uh, there's a pharmacy close to our house. And so it's the, the pharmacy that we go to when the kids get sick or we need something or whatever it is. And when you, when you leave the pharmacy and you're getting ready to pull out, uh, there's a sign there that says no left turn. And I, I'm just going to tell you, it's, it's really stupid that that sign is there. There's no, there's no good reason for that sign to be there. It's not a busy road at all. So oftentimes I'll, I'll pull up and I need to go left and there's nobody there. And so guess what happens in my heart in that moment? I don't even hesitate, right? I just, I just go left and there's this sick little thing in my heart that gets a lot of satisfaction out of going left when the sign says no left turn. I'm like, man, you know, stick it to the man. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, like, this is a, such a dumb sign. Forget you. You don't tell me if I can't turn left. I'm an American by God. I'm going to go, going to go left. And we're just like, what does that come from in my heart? Like, what, what, what is that? And the reality is the scriptures teach us that, that we're, we're born with this sort of sin nature. Um, if, you, if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't have to teach our kids how to disobey. We don't have to model for them rebellion or telling lies. Like they're born with that junk. Right? And that's what, again, this is what the Bible calls our sin nature. And part of that broken nature that we're born with is this unhealthy hatred of any kind of authority. I think that's why the scriptures are constantly reminding us as followers of Jesus to be submissive. And so all throughout the scriptures, we get these commands like, children, be submissive to your parents. Employees, be submissive, be, be respectful to your bosses, like church members, be submissive to your church leaders. Christians, obey your authorities, like obey the laws, be good citizens. It's just like this constant refrain that's repeated in Scripture. And I think it's because everything in us just wants to do the opposite. You know, ultimately, all these commands for us to be submissive as Christians 
I think, are tied to us learning how to submit to, to God. And so we need this constant reminder because we're born sinners and our instinct is to buck against any authority. And Paul is saying, no. No, believer, God, God has placed these authorities in your life. And so in a real sense, we submit to God by submitting to the authorities that he places in our life. And I think this is hard for anybody. I think it's doubly hard sometimes for us as Americans because our whole culture is built on the idea of individualism. Like if you think about it, our country was founded on a rebellion. Like the the fabric, the motto of American culture is what? Don't tread on me. Get off my back. Don't tell me what to do, punk. I'm an American. Right? We're all about independence and freedom, and nobody tells me what to do. We got this John Wayne sort of thing going on as a culture. And some of that is, is okay as a secular nation, but as Christians, we have to be really, really, really careful that our Americanism doesn't bleed over into our Christian faith. Right? Because sometimes these two ideas are at odds. And as followers of Jesus, If we have to choose between being an American and being a Christian, we choose following Jesus every time, right? The same Jesus that called us to lay down our lives, to lay down our rights, not to to pick fights and be jerks. And so I think this is the first truth that Paul would give us in the text this morning. Number one, Christians are to be great citizens. We We should be the best citizens, Honest, hardworking, paying our taxes, obeying the laws, working to make our cities better places. Like, like governments should want Christians around just because we're like better citizens than everybody else. One of the things that we do every spring uh, here at New Life is we uh, link arms. We join with about 10 to 12 other local churches in Asheville in an event called uh, Serve Asheville. And it's a weekend where we just, we kind of flood our city and we do good to our city in the name of Jesus. And when this event started back seven, eight years ago, from what I understand, the churches would uh, call local government officials and public schools and nobody wanted to work with the churches in Asheville. And it was just kind of this suspicion, like they didn't really trust us, kind of like, man, are you guys going to come out to the park and then get a bullhorn and start screaming to everybody that they're going to hell? Are you going to leave tracks in all the urinals? Like, what, what are you guys really, like, what are you guys really up to? But over time, we've, we've gained their trust to such an extent that now oftentimes city officials and public schools will call us. They'll call the churches and they'll say, hey man, we, we need help with this because they know we care and we know, they know that we love them because Jesus has first loved us. You see, our lives as Christians should stand in contrast to the venom and the vitriol and the toxicity that we see. Man, when we just turn on the radio or we turn on our news feed on our, uh, online or on TV or whatever it is, we just see like this polarized nation that we're becoming. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, it's so easy just to get caught up in that just to get swept up in the hatred and the us versus them. And sadly, far too often, my social media feeds are just filled with people that claim the name of Jesus and they're just railing on stuff. Just railing on a political party 
or a person in government that they've never actually even met or whatever it is. And oftentimes it's just petty stuff. And even, and this is what really breaks my heart. Oftentimes I'll even see Christians posting untrue articles, just not even fact checking them. Just because they agree, they just hit repost. And I see this on every side of the, polit- the political spectrum. So let me just encourage you, don't be sitting there thinking, yeah, Chris, you go get those dumb Republicans. Or you go, you go get those idiotic Democrats. No, 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 no. I see people on both sides just acting like fools. Just acting like the world instead of living a set-apart life. And so can I, can I just say, as, as one of your pastors here, in a spirit of humility and love, if that's you, Christian, Please stop. Please stop. This is the way the world acts. We belong to another kingdom and a better king. So yes, be involved, vote, do your civic duty. I do all that stuff, but don't get down in the mud, Christian. We are not to be an argumentative people. We are not to be a venomous people. We are not to be an angry people. We are to be the people of Jesus Christ. We're to be about his kingdom and his kingdom of love. Now, you may ask the question, well, is there ever any exception to this? Is there ever a time where we shouldn't be submissively obedient to the government? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. There are times when man's law contradicts God's law. And on the rare occasion that that happens, we choose to follow God and we choose to live with the consequences that follow now, we see a picture of this clearly in the book of Acts, chapter 5, I think, Acts, Acts chapter 7 as well. The apostles, we see them being arrested. We see them being beaten. We see them being commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter's response to the governing officials is epic, right? Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. We cannot but speak about the things that we have heard and the things that we have seen. And so uh, when Cheryl and I made a decision back Nine years ago, uh, to go as missionaries into a closed Muslim country where it's illegal to go as a missionary, it's illegal to share the gospel with Muslims, we chose in that moment to obey God rather than man, right? And so we were kind of joking with our kids just last week. We were kind of messing with them. We said, hey, did you know mommy and daddy are criminals? You know, and their, their eyes get all big. And they go, what did you guys do? Like, yeah. We're, we're criminals. We're, we're like fugitives, right? We went into this place illegally and we chose to obey God rather than man's laws because God tells us to take this gospel to all nations and all people and these people need to hear about Jesus. So we went in and we told them about Jesus. So yes, church, there comes a time when we rebel against the laws of men, but it's always only in order to obey God. Outside of those rare occasions, we are to be the best citizens in the world, loving, obeying, praying for our leaders, encouraging them, right? The second thing Paul says here for these young believers is to be ready for every good work. Now, this is, I, this is the idea of practical help for other people, that as Christians, we are to be about looking for opportunities to love, serve, and help people in our lives. And he's saying, Christian, listen, you need to be intentional about this. We should be actively looking for opportunity to love and serve people in such a way that they would see the beauty of our God, who, by the way, came to love us and gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And practically what this means is we must carve out time in our schedule. We must set aside 
finances for this. Like, I, look, I can't help a single mom in my workplace if I spent all my money this month on whatever, like eating out at a steakhouse every other night, right? I can't help the, the widow who, who lives right down the street from me uh, by cleaning out her gutters or whatever if I've allowed my schedule to get so busy with meetings and events that I have no margin in my schedule for good works. So Paul is saying, Christian, you, listen, you've got to be intentional about this. And that's uh, truth number two this morning. The Christian life is characterized by good works. We're marked by good works. We're to be about helping and loving other people. Like People should look at our lives as followers of Jesus, and they should just think, man, I think I may have to reconsider this whole Christianity thing. Like I walked away or I think I just thought it was foolishness, but I know this Christian now. I work with them. I live in the same neighborhood with them. And I just like looking at the way they live their lives, I, I think I just need to pause and like reconsider this whole thing. Because these are like the kindest, most loving, gentle people I've ever seen in my life. Our life should just be marked, be characterized by these kind of good works. Then in verse two, Paul says, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward the people you agree with politically. Perfect courtesy to those who believe just like you believe. No, perfect courtesy toward all people. This should just be how we live. Not just inside the church with one another, but Paul is saying this is the way that we interact with the world around us. Like with people that we disagree with, with people who don't like us, with people who even persecute us. Like we speak evil of no one. We avoid fights and arguments. We're gentle with people. We show courtesy to all people. That, term, that terminology in the original language, to show courtesy to all people, that literally means to show courtesy to all people. That's shocking, right? All people. In other words, there's no loophole here. Paul doesn't give us an, an exemption or an exception. You're thinking, okay, so does that mean that I have to live that way, even with that politician that I can't stand? Yep, him too. Yep, her too. You mean I have to live this way with that family member that just like jumps over all over my last nerve? Yep, them too. Christian, tell me I got to live this way with this type of love and attitude and grace towards my jerk boss? Yep, your jerk boss too. Speak no evil. Give them grace. Perfect courtesy to all people. Paul is saying that's the Christian way. We're to be about doing good to people in our lives, in our words, in our attitudes, and in our actions. I love this quote by uh, Martin Luther, the great church father and reformer. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. What he's saying is the way that we live our lives, our good works, the way that we live with the world around us, stuff matters. The way we live, what we do, it actually matters. Now listen, to be sure, we don't live this way to earn our salvation. We don't do good works to earn our salvation. Clearly the scriptures teach that Jesus had already done done all that for, for us. But what Luther was saying, what the scriptures are saying, what Paul is saying here to Titus is that authentic saving faith births this type of life in us. It just spills over onto other people in our lives. Jesus would say it this way. You can tell a tree by its 
by its fruits. Authentic faith produces authentic fruit. And so as we go through this this morning, perhaps a healthy question for all of us would be just to ask ourselves, what fruit is my life producing right now? Like, is my, is my life characterized by doing good to people, by being a good citizen, by speaking evil of no one, by living an authentic life imitating Jesus? Like, are those the fruits of my life? Or is my life marked? Is my life dominated by other fruits? This is the way, by the way, that Paul is saying Christians are to engage and impact our culture. Which means that the proper way as followers of Jesus to engage and interact with our culture is that, listen, when we walk into our favorite coffee shop right around now, as we head into December, as we walk into our favorite restaurant, as our, the grocery store, whatever it is, and some person is trying to be nice to us and they say, happy holidays, we don't snarl back at them and say, it's Merry Christmas. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Heathen, you're probably going to hell. It's Merry Christmas. Don't you know what this whole season's about? Like, as Christians, sometimes we just get worked up over the dumbest stuff. I think Paul is just saying, like, stop it. Don't be about that. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, and Paul is reminding these brand new believers in Crete not to become self-righteous, not to become spiritually arrogant. Like it's almost astounding how quickly many of us, man, we become followers of Jesus. God saves us out of a life of darkness and almost overnight we, beca- we can become self-righteous. We can become judgmental really, really quickly. So Paul is saying, believer, remember who you were before Jesus. Like apart from him, you were all these things. You were foolish. You were disobedient. You were a slave to sin, living your life, hating people and being hated by others in return. And I think that's the danger sometimes for those of us who are believers, particularly those of us who have grown up in churches. We can read lists like this that Paul gives us in verse 3, and we can think in our minds, yeah, that's about them out there. That, that, that's about the culture out there. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Believer, this, this was you apart from Jesus. Don't forget that. You were given grace by God when you didn't deserve it at all. That's the core message of Christianity, isn't it? That while we couldn't get to God, while our sin was great, while we were separated from God, he gave us grace. He sent Jesus to rescue us when we didn't deserve his grace. We didn't deserve his love. We deserved his judgment. And so our whole life should be lived in light of the grace and the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. And so Paul says, young believers, remember who you were apart from Jesus. You were messed up. Your heart was dark. Your heart was wicked. You say, Chris, man, that sounds like bad news. I didn't come to church to hear that kind of garbage on Thanksgiving weekend of all times. But listen, it, it flows into really good news. Paul flows this, he ties this right into the, the best news in the world. And so what we're about to read, the next portion of this letter, I think, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful pictures and expressions of the gospel ever written. And so just want to encourage you, tune in. If you're dialing out, uh, tune into this, starting in verse 4. This is what 
Paul says. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is the reference to the coming of Jesus, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, listen, you guys were once foolish and you were slaves and you were haters and you were hated by other people. And then he gets to verse four and he goes, but God, but God wasn't content to leave you there. And then Paul just launches into the gospel. And he says, listen, while we were still in our sin, while we were slaves to our sin, while we were loving our sin, he actually says in Romans that in that moment when we were loving our sin before Jesus redeemed us, we were actually enemies of God. While we were still his enemies, Jesus came and he saved us. And he washed us. And we sing songs about that here, don't we? He washed us in his blood and made us clean. And if that weren't enough, not only did he wash us and make us clean, but he poured his spirit into our hearts to guide us and lead us. And then, it says, then Paul says he also justified us. Like that's a legal term that means being declared innocent. That in Jesus, though we are guilty and though we deserve death, hell, and separation from God forever, when we place our faith in Jesus, he declares us righteous and innocent. Like not because of anything that we did, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And then Paul says, not only does Jesus save us, not only does he pour his spirit into our hearts, not only does he declare us innocent, he also makes us co-heirs with Jesus. He makes us sons and daughters of the God of this universe. And if that's not enough, he also gives us eternal life with him forever. Like if that doesn't fire you up, you need to get saved again. Or get saved the first time maybe. Because this is the best news in the world. And here's why Paul connects living a godly life with the gospel again and again and again in this letter to Titus and these young believers in Crete. And this is kind of our third truth. The gospel is the fuel for sanctification. The gospel is the fuel for sanctification. Now, sanctification is just a biblical word, a big biblical word that speaks to the process of becoming more and more like Jesus as we walk with him over the course of our lives. And we constantly, as followers of Jesus, we constantly need to be reminded of this grace that we've received of what Jesus has done for us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of the fact that we did not earn this grace and we don't deserve it. Gospel grace is the fuel that we need to live this type of radical, powerful life that causes those around us just to marvel at the beauty of God in our lives. Christian, we never move on from the gospel The gospel is our power source, the spiritual power source for our lives. We need to come back to it every single day and just marvel at it. Just allow our hearts to be bathed in its beauty over and over and over again. Allow it to transform us, to make us more gracious people, more humble people, more gentle people, more loving people in light of it. Man, I I need that in my life. Because my heart drifts. So maybe it's just a confession time for me, but man, I can, I can so easily become calloused. 
in this world that we live in, I can become numb. I can become emotionally numb and just turn it off. I can become cynical really quickly. I can get rough around the edges. Like I, I need God to tenderize my heart every single day. I need him to do this in my life again and again and again so that I would become the husband that my wife needs, so that I would be the daddy to my children that they need, so that I would become the pastor that this church needs. Like, God, I need this every single day of my life. And believers, so, so do you. And so let's not, let's not neglect the gospel. Let's not think we get too mature and like move past it. Like let's come back and let's marvel together again and again and again at what our Savior has done for us. And then Paul says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So he's going back to this idea again of connecting our faith, what we say we believe, with how we actually live our lives. He's saying, Titus, make sure that these young believers understand that they are to live a certain type of life. Their life is to be characterized by these good works. And then he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul is just re-emphasizing, Titus, man, insist on these things. Teach these new believers to live a life of good works. Why? Because this is profitable to people around us, to the people outside of the walls of our church. We live for the good of others. At least we ought to as the people of Jesus. And here's why. This is our last truth this morning. Our good works authenticate the gospel. Our good works authenticate the gospel. This is the way Jesus said it in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. This is what Jesus taught. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, believer, to be sure, our good works don't save us. But here's what they do. They do communicate to the world around us that our message is legit. And then he gives us a warning as he begins to wrap up the letter in verse 9. He says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. That is like the Old Testament, the Bible. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so Paul is saying, hey, Christians, stay out of the weeds. Stay out of the weeds, man. Don't get hung up in these controversies and these theological debates and these arguments. He says, this stuff is worthless. And by the way, he says, listen, if you have a person in your church that's doing this and they're causing and stirring up division, you're to go to them. You're to confront them in love a couple of times if necessary. But if they won't stop, if they won't sort of backtrack, if they won't repent, Titus, protect your church from this person. He's giving us, he's painting for us a picture of church discipline here. He's saying, don't let a person in your church tear apart the family of faith. Bring them under spiritual discipline for their good and for the health of the church.
And so Paul is saying sometimes being a healthy church means doing the hard work of loving church discipline. I can tell you as a pastor and for the rest of our elders here, uh, this isn't fun. Like when we have to have these conversations with people and we do have these conversations with people, this is never fun. This is not something that we wake up in the morning and be like, I cannot wait to do some church discipline today. It's just, like, this is probably the one part of my job that I actually, I hate. Like I can't sleep for weeks at a time, right? Paul is saying, look, we, like as pastors, as shepherds, as elders, we have to love you enough that if you're calling yourself a Christian, but then you're out there living in a way that shames Jesus, like we've got to love you enough, we've got to love the church enough, we have to love Jesus enough to come and talk to you about it. Jesus requires this from us. The health of our church, right? The, the gospel message hinges on that. Like we, we've got to do this. And so Paul is saying, Titus, do this. Practice this in the church. And then in verse 12, he begins to land the plane with Titus. And he says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus, if you're looking for a name for your, your kid or something, you might want to come to Titus. Got some good ones. Artemis or Tychicus. Uh, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. Uh, these are our brothers who are helping out and kind of advancing the kingdom of Jesus in the first uh, century church planting movement. He says, see that they lack nothing. Verse 14, and let our people, these young believers, learn to devote themselves to good work. Just in case you didn't get it like the other 400 times he said it, he's saying it again. Like this is what your life is to be about. Devote your life to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And so Paul closes out this meaningful and challenging letter by exhorting us as followers of Jesus to, to devote ourselves to good works to devote ourselves to the good of others for the glory of God. And so don't let your faith be fruitless, Paul would say. Live in, in a way that would cause the people outside of the church to consider the claims of Jesus. They do good in such a way that people would just have to like look in, like peer in on your life and say, man, if that's what Jesus does to somebody, if that's what Jesus does in somebody's life, like I need to consider this. Maybe I need to come back and like consider what it actually means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling us to as believers. As we close, let me uh, invite the band up. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me just for a moment as we reflect on what God might be saying to us this morning through Titus. I always want us just to carve out some space and time in every worship service just for us to pause, and I want to allow time and space for the Spirit of God to do His work in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. We want the Spirit of God to take the Word of God, and we want Him to massage it into our hearts and our souls and our minds in a way that would actually change us. Because I think so often, I know you guys are like me, we live our lives at these breakneck speeds, it's like we're in church and then we're going to go meet somebody for this lunch or this appointment or small group or whatever it is. 
And if we're not careful, we never actually take the time just to be silent before the Lord and allow His Spirit to take His Word and just drive it deep into our hearts in a way that would change us. So I want to do that this morning. Before we move on to whatever our busy schedule is this afternoon, this evening, just to take a moment and pause. Just be quiet before the Lord and consider a couple of questions in light of what he said to us through the book of Titus. So the first question that I just want to kind of put on your plate for you to consider is this. Have you, have you ever been regenerated by God? Have you ever actually gotten a new heart? Jesus called this the, the new birth. There's a story actually in John's Gospel, chapter 3, where uh, Nicodemus is this really religious guy. By all accounts, he's a good guy. He knew the Bible really well, and he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. And he just engages Jesus in this spiritual conversation. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, this good guy, this religious guy, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. You've got to have a new heart. And I'm the one that can give you this new heart and this new birth. And so if you're here this morning and you've never experienced that new birth, you're like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I grew up in church. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I don't know what you're talking about. And I just, let me encourage you, like, consider giving your life to Jesus today. Not just playing games, not just coming to church, like actually pledging your allegiance to Jesus for the rest of your life. Just saying to him, like, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired of trying to live my life and make things happen on my own. I'm tired of chasing all these things I think are going to make me happy, and they leave me disappointed. So I just want to give my life to you and follow you. If you do that, I can promise you, you're like, your life will never be the same. Never be the same. You'd be just, it's going to be absolutely incredible. It's not going to be easy, but I can tell you I experienced this 18 years ago, and my life has never been the same. It's been not an easy journey, but it's been an absolutely incredible journey with him. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. So maybe that's where you're at, where you just need to, that's your first step. You can't get to step two or three or four in your life until you get step one right, and that step one is giving your life to Jesus, experiencing that new heart and that new birth that only he can give you. For those who are Christians in the room, here's a question for you. Does your life, like the way that you're living right now, does your life magnify the gospel of Jesus? Okay, like have, have you left enough margin in your schedule and your finances to, to be about doing good to others in a way that would bring God glory, in a way that would authenticate the gospel to the world around you? Because your, is your life proof that the gospel is true to people around you? Or does your life cast doubt on the claims of Christianity? And in light of that, would you be so bold right now, just in the silence of your heart, to ask God, like, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to change? What's, 
What do you want me to rearrange in my life, especially as we head into this season of where it's all about buying and sales and spending on ourselves and spending on people in our lives that we love? Like, what's he asking you to do right now? And just ask God, honestly, God, what do you, what do you want me to lay down in my life right now so that I could pick up the life that you've designed for me, you've created for me to live in? And then when God speaks to you and he gives you what it is that you're supposed to do, will you be bold enough to follow him and to obey him? Pray for us, God. God, would you help us not to get sidetracked, not to get caught up in the weeds of life, especially this time of the year? God, it's so easy, so easy just to get consumed by things that really won't matter at all in the end. It's so easy to chase things that we think are gonna make us happy, things that are gonna satisfy us. But in the end, these are things ultimately that lead us into places of anxiety and depression and pain. And so God, I ask that you would help us to find this abundant life that you offer us by walking with you, God, by doing good to others, by making disciples of Jesus as we help them to find and follow you. And Father, we ask and we pray all these things in the name that stands above every other name in the world, the name of Jesus, amen.